Good morning again, everybody. I'm glad that you're here today. I hope that you've had a good week. But even as we're sitting back there in, in prayer, I can feel like there's a, a heaviness upon us. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the Spirit changes this message as I go along to speak to some of those needs. Um, today we're going to be going through Nahum chapter 2. We're going to continue in this series of going through the prophets. And I want to encourage you to try to spend some time during the week um, in, in these books so that way you have another time that it is in front of you. During the week you're able to make observations, you're able to see things in texts that can be questions that you might have answered on a Sunday. It's important to do those types of things for your personal growth as, as you walk with the Lord. Um, it's a little bit easier with this type of format to do that um, when you have this type of a walkthrough. In your topical sermons, I could be all over the place with a lot of different scriptures. Um, it's a little bit harder to do that. You know, but as I was preparing for the message this week, I felt like this message was kind of a trap type of message for me. Um, if you know me, I am a tad bit sarcastic. I tend to enjoy jokes. Um, dad jokes are how I roll. And if I get some groans or some laughter, I think I got to keep going. And if I don't get anything, that means it's a challenge. I got to try harder to make you laugh. So it's a win-win for you, really. Um, but you know, as I read through this pa passage, I had a few jokes that just popped into my mind right away, which I knew would be a distraction because of the severity and the seriousness of this passage. And Nahum uses sarcasm and rhetorical devices in the way that he is presenting this information to the Assyrians in the form of taunts, where he is calling them out and he is taunting them. And as I was preparing for this, I thought, okay, how can I not get distracted by those types of things and focus on that seriousness? You know, and as I made that type of observation in my own heart and mind, I wanted to bring that up to you guys as well. Just being aware of those types of things can help our focus a little bit more as we go through this chapter. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read through chapter 2 today. Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up, up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots came or come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. 
There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Father, as we approach this, this depiction of battle, of judgment, Lord, I just pray that you would humble our own hearts and minds as we hear your truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we walk through this chapter, um, I want to explain a little bit, kind of going verse by verse to give some of the history and the context and then come back to have some points that we're going to draw out from the chapter. I mean, any time um, that you're reading through scriptures, different things will stand out to you, um, different things that the Lord might be leaning on your heart and mind. Um, it's not, might not always be a point of emphasis in the message, but as you are tuning into what the Lord's teaching you, you lean into those types of things. And with some of these passages, some of these scriptures that we haven't read in a long time, it can stand out to us. I didn't know that that was in there. You know, and it can make us ponder a little bit. So I want to walk through a little bit to give us a, a brief explanation. And as we start out, we see how this is a warning. Um, it's a warning of preparation to where the people are to be prepared. And you have the scatterer or the shatterer or the attacker that is going to be coming upon them, one that is going to break them into pieces. Now, of course, we understand that this is speaking of the Babylonians and the Medes, who's going to be used by God to destroy Assyria. But in the future, the same thing is going to be said of the Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 21 references, it's a reference that mimics this type of prophecy. He says, you are my hammer and the weapon of war. With you, I break nations into pieces. With you, I destroy kingdoms. So in that passage, it's a judgment against Bab Babylon to where uh, the Persians are going to be coming in. They're going to be used by God. So this person, this nation that's known as the scatterer is coming. And he warns them to man the ramparts, to, to put men up on the wall, to be watchmen, to watch the road, to be prepared for the army that's going to be coming. And you look at verse 2, and you see how that first word is for. That's a reason, that's a cause. The reason why they should be, be prepared is because the Lord is going to restore Jacob. He's going to restore Israel. And we'll come back to this point at the end of the message. But starting in verse 3, he begins to describe the battle scene, and he describes the army that is going to be attacking. And this is a taunt that is being used. This is a sarcasm back to the Assyrians for what they have done. Because the Assyrians would take their armor and they would roll it in blood. And then they would go into battle to have more intimidation, more fear for the enemy. 
And the blood that's being described here, because this is a warning, is the Assyrians' own blood. Their blood is going to scatter and smear all over the opponent's armor, that it's going to be bathed in blood. Um, chariots, spears, they would be used against them, things that they have used to conquer so many other nations. And the metal from their chariots would be glistening in the sunlight so that it would look like torches as they're racing madly through the city. Now, the city of Nineveh is large. Um, It's a very big city. The outer wall um, would surround the whole city. One side of the wall was eight miles long. Uh, You would have heights ranging from 25 to 60 feet on the wall. Um, On one side of the city was the Tigris River, so that provided access to a moat that would surround the city, so more protection. There was another tributary, a river that flowed through the middle of the city. There was 15 heavily guarded gates along the walls and a population of around 300,000 people, covering 1,800 acres. So it was a big city that had high walls, a river beside it, People felt safe. People felt secure. There was safety and comfort in their own accomplishments. But soon, chaos would would be in the mindsets of the people as siege towers would be set up, as the river gates were going to be opened, as we see in verses 5 and 6. People, officers would be stumbling to get to their positions. Now for me, I have a couple ways that I envision this happening. Um, First, there are some writings in Greek literature that describe the takeover of Nineveh. And there are some accounts that there was bad flooding that year that might have compromised one of those walls, making it easier for the the opposing armies to get into the city. The way I envision it, I like to think of it like Lord of the Rings in the Battle of Isengard when the Ents release the river and it comes in and melts the palace away. Because you think of a river... It's relentless, constantly pounding against the rocks, constantly flowing, constantly moving. That describes this battle to where the enemies are going to continually pour in and flood into the city, making utter destruction, and it's leaving utter destruction in its wake. The wrath of God is being poured down in judgment upon these people. Nahum is one of the best descriptions that we have of the wrath of God being seen. After the walls are breached and the enemy is into the city, everything is going to be plundered. You know, the king of Nineveh had built this big storehouse and they put all their gold, all their silver, all their weapons within there. That's all going to be taken away. Women and children are going to be trapped. They're going to be surrounded on all sides. As it says in verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. It would look like an irrigation system if you've ever seen one of those to where as you send the water out, it looks for the path of least resistance and it goes down the rows in the ways that you have kind of dug out. That's the way that the men would be fleeing from this battle. They would be trying to survive even as officers are telling them to halt, halt, come back. They would be trying to be like a survival of this fittest mentality. They would be escaping, trying to flee from this battle. And then you look at verse 10. Verse 10 really describes the turmoil, the psychological damage, or for our young people, the emotional damage for Nineveh. For the people 
to look at their luxury, to look at their comfort, everything being ripped away, everything in ruin, desolation, despair everywhere that they turn. And you have four expressions that are being used here in verse 10. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all their loins, faces pale. Verse 10 really depicts the seriousness of this battle. And unless you've been in battle, unless you've seen traumatic uh, scenes type of thing, you really can't understand the effects and the images that it has on your mind. You think of the PTSD that many of our soldiers have. War is not a video game where you can just respond. It is brutal. It is hellish. It's the gruesome reality of life and death, of the wickedness within man. And these four expressions try to relay that message to us. And then it switches in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 are taunts. This is sarcasm being used because the Assyrians called themselves lions. Isaiah chapter 5 describes who the Lord is going to use to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. In in the last couple of verses of chapter 5, in verses 29 and 30, he says this, Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and they seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. And then in Jeremiah, kind of a callback to the Assyrians, Jeremiah is prophesying about the fall of Babylon, but in chapter 50, verse 17 through 20, this is what Jeremiah says, Israel is is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So we can see this imagery that's being used and described here of of the lions and the lion's den kind of being a slap in the face to the Assyrians, where this is a contrast to what they may have been called in the past as strong, young, proud lions. That's how they saw themselves. Lions were emblazoned on their shields and on their armor, and they would call themselves that to what they were now. You know, before, the Assyrians were proud. They were brutal. They left death and bloody dismemberment in their path. They were cruel to all of their victims. They would flay open bodies and hang them on their own walls leaving nothing but uh, destruction in their wake. They were sick. The people of Nineveh, the people in the city, probably only knew the spoils of war, probably only knew the rewards, the benefits, the lifestyles, the comforts, the gold, the drunkenness, 
whereas the armies, the soldiers, knew of the atrocities. The people that were in the city were so drunk on their comforts that they probably made them weak, rejecting the calls of prophecy. Then you see verse 13. Verse 13 is very important for us to understand as well. In this verse, you see the second of four judgment announcements within Nahum. Um, All of these are marked by the term behold. The first one was at the end of chapter 1. Uh, Verse 15, and then here you have the last verse of this chapter as well. And then within this announcement, you have three times the first person being used, showing the very direct, intimate involvement that God has in pouring out his wrath. Through using the Babylonians, through using the Medes, it is his judgment on the Assyrians. See, there's only room enough for one lion, and that is the Lion of Judah. So this is kind of a rough explanation, kind of a brief overview of some of the context in history. But when we read through the prophets, sometimes you gotta think, well, how do you read a prophet? How do you understand a prophet's words for today? You know, and many times when we read the Bible, we read it for ourselves, because obviously the Bible is written for me and me alone. You know, if Nahum can use sarcasm, I figure I can too. But when we first read this, we probably want to understand the history behind it and what happened to the Assyrian people, especially as we sit on this side of the prophecy and we can see the things that have been fulfilled. At the present time, we see how this truth is being given to this people, how this prophecy, this warning is being given to them. Um, Probably indifference in general in terms of their response to God. We don't see a response in Nahum here like we do in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, the the people repent. So we see that response to what God had called out. Um, We also see within this a future promise to the people of God for restoration. So these are some of the points that we want to hopefully learn and understand from history. Because as the saying goes, if you don't learn from it, you might be doomed to repeat it. So we want to pull out some important points. Let's start with a present view. So as the people would be hearing this message in their day. You know, as with anything that's told to you that's in the future, you have to use discernment. You have to understand what's true and what's not, and you you place your belief in in that. It's kind of a logical and simple, simple way to look at that. In our contexts today, you know, we preach and we call out prophecies that we see in the Bible. We the the easiest one is the return of Christ. Now, yes, there's a lot of different variations and beliefs surrounding his return and what all of that means. But as a believer in Christ, we place our faith that he is going to return. We place our faith and our hope that that is the truth. But what about a non-believer? Say a non-believer hears that Jesus is going to come back. How do they understand the return of Christ? Is it a myth? Is it a fairy tale? Is it the opium of the masses, as Marx says? You know, every time that we present the gospel message, it's upon that person to believe as the Lord calls on their heart. And if that person is not in a place of brokenness because of their own sin, what do they actually hear? Because the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So the Assyrians, 
would they actually believe that they're going to be overthrown by this God that they've already conquered half of his land? Would they believe that these tall walls that they've erected could come down? Or would they believe in their own strength? Would they believe in the life of luxury that they have? Would they believe in what they have built up for themselves to continue to get them through as it always has? Questions and problems that have plagued humanity for all of mankind, for all of history, the same types of things have to be understood in our own hearts and minds. In the example of the Assyrians, and really we can look to every world power throughout the Bible, throughout history we see similarities. Many nations that have fallen can usually be, their fall can usually be attributed to trusting in their own strength and a time of complacency throughout their history. As the saying goes, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And the first point that I want us to draw from this chapter is that there is not a nation in history that is too big to fail. You think of the various size of the empires throughout time. How many of them are still around? They might last for centuries, but eventually they fall. Those nations, those individuals, many times choose to rule by fear and intimidation rather than the fear in the Lord. Those nations will have to experience his righteous indignation, his wrath, his judgment, because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible tells us that the sovereignty that nations are given are granted as a trust, as a loan from God in order for them to bring some measure of justice to the injustices that happen on this earth. We talked about this when we went through the Truth Project where nations are given power by God over time to to correct some of those things, to address some of those things that are going on in people's lives through oppression. But when nations subvert that divine rule, that divine authority for their own less noble causes, well, they're going to have to face judgment because of it. When they abuse their power, there will be consequences. Normally, you will face those consequences at earth, on earth. But everyone, every leader is going to have to give an account to God with what has been done with what's been given to them. And as we talked about last week, many times we want that judgment, that wrath to be poured down right now. But God is slow to anger. We have to understand that for many leaders, power and greed can take over hearts. And nations fall because of that. Now put yourself in their shoes for a moment, in the shoes of the Assyrians. Compare the Assyrians to America. Obviously, we have guns, so we're good, right? We can defeat anybody. I mean, if somebody comes and tells us as a nation that they're going to take us over, we're probably going to laugh. You know, if North Korea or Iran says that they're going to take us over, they're going to destroy us, we just look back to their latest missile test and think, okay, buddy, whatever you say. And they might get some attacks and there might be some times of destruction and terrorism. But overall, even with a wide open southern border, many of us still feel pretty secure being in America. 
And I might be assuming here, but I think being in the region that we're in, most of us have the understanding that America will probably destroy itself from within based on the policies and agendas that are being pushed culturally and politically. We see the incompetence of leadership, the thirst for retaining power and control over doing things in God's way, incompetence to allow things like balloons to fly over strategic areas of our nation, to continue to blow out spending, to have unsustainable debt while bailing everybody else out with money that we don't have, We have banks that are going under right now and the talk of who gets the bailouts. Just more inflationary spending. But of course, we're too dumb in the Midwest to really know what's going on. We see the resources dwindling. We see the writing on the wall. And we know that we're not headed in the right direction as a nation. And that's just economics. That's just finance. That's not even the spiritual health of the nation which has been on decline for years. Many times, we're just left throwing up our hands, saying, Jesus, come now. When we face hard times, when we face spinning wheels in this type of situation, we are to depend on the Lord. And this leads me to the second point for us today. And that is that our power, our strength, our might cannot compare to the power of God. Now this is a focal point within how he describes the army, but also within verses 10 through 13. Whatever the Assyrians were valuing could not compare to the power of God. A biggest city that had high walls was nothing compared to him. It would be reduced to rubble. The national symbol of a lion would be mocked because they would meet a true lion. Their storehouses would be plundered. They would be robbed as they have robbed others. The weapons of warfare that they had put their hope and their trust in that that they used to get to where they were at that point would be used against them. And we see their expressions in verse 10 when they were faced with the true power of God. Hearts melt, knees tremble, Anguish in all loins and faces growing pale. Should we be any different? This point must lead the reader or the hearer of this message to a point of humility and brokenness. To understand what it is that we put our hope and our trust in. God calls us to have a broken and contrite heart to know who we are and who God is. What is it that we as a nation, as a state, as a city, as a church, as individuals put our hope in? Is it our jobs, our family, our bank accounts? I mean, what is it that we are prioritizing in our life that we are leaning on instead of God? Do we trust that our leaders will fight the injustices so we don't have to? It's their job, not mine. Are our fridges full in a a way that we can give thanks to God once a week versus understanding that we thank God for our daily bread? 
I mean, it's one thing to give the power of God lip service, but it's a completely different thing to live that way, depending solely on him. I mean, I look at verse 13 and how it's, how it's personal, how it's first person. I relate that to Matthew 7, where he says, away from me, I never knew you. The power of God is more than we can fathom. But to know that that power is against you, how would you not respond with hearts melting? Who can stand against the indignation of the Lord? Verse six from chapter one. And the final point for us today is that the Lord will restore his people. This goes back up to verse two, but also the Jeremiah 50 verses that I had read earlier. If you recall, in verse 19, he said, I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. And in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Now, if you look at verse 2 and the, and the Jeremiah verse along with that, we want to keep our con- the context in mind. At this point in time, the northern kingdom has already being, is already being punished. They're in exile at this time. The southern kingdom is soon to follow as the Babylonians will take, uh, take the scene. But God says that he will keep a remnant. He will keep those back um, in order to maintain the promise that he has communicated through the prophets, the promise that he gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will be their God and they would be his people. For the, for the present, the people have rejected him and they are being disciplined. They are being judged for the rejection of God. You know, in, in the same way that parents discipline their children in hopes that they repent and they return to the parents' teaching. God is a God of restoration to where even while we were still sinners, he sends his son to die in our place in order to restore us. And he will restore his people after a time of exile, after a time of judgment here in this context. But you know, when you look at the language of of branches being used, perhaps your version will say vine branches. This should draw our minds to a lot of different passages to make some different connections in scripture. You can go to passages like Matthew 7 that talk about the good branches and the bad branches, the good fruit and the bad fruit. You can go to passages like Romans 11 that talk about the grafting of the wild branches into the olive tree. Uh, Complicated passage to wrestle through for sure. You can go to passages like John 15 where Jesus is teaching that he is the vine and we are the branches, showing that he is the source of life for the branches. But as you look at how the Lord is restoring and will restore Jacob, it is a promise. One that may be difficult for them to believe based on their current situation. You know, as we go through hardships and trials, we can read scripture and wonder how is that true. I'm still triggered by a couple of the Psalms as I read them. I still have questions. But even as I wrestle through those things, the truth of the word of God, the truth of God still just shines through brightly. Even if I don't understand it, God's word is true. And as he promises to restore, it is a promise that we can hold on to. 
no matter what sins you might be going through, no matter what struggles or hardships that you're going through right now, God's promises stand firm that he will restore you. And like we talked about last week, we get impatient and we want things right now. God is slow to anger. If you lean into the pain, if you lean into the hardship, you'll be surprised at what the Lord can teach you through it. What he can teach you through suffering. Because many times, especially in America, we have this complex that we are the best. And we need to be humbled. We need to be brought low before God. Especially in a, in a country where we can freely worship. And we can, yeah, I feel like going to church today. That sounds good. Actually, basketball's going to be on later. Our hearts, our attitudes need to be sold out for him and him alone. We have too many competing things in this life. And we need to be brought low. We need to be judged. We need to be able to see the errors of our ways, the things that we are relying on instead of him. Because our hearts deceive us. Our, self, our selfishness will continue to try to find strongholds so that the enemy can get into our lives to draw us away from the Father. And we need to be on guard for that. As we wrap up today, when we're walking through this passage, we see the destruction of a great city and a proud people. Through that, we want to remember in humility that a nation, a person, is never too big to fail. No matter what the leaders might be telling you, no matter what your experiences might tell you from the past, we want to be humble before the Lord. We want to understand his power is greater than the things that we uphold. That power is given as a trust to correct injustices that happen in this world. At least that's what we're supposed to see happening with our leadership. But many times world governments are creating or perpetrating the injustices themselves. But we have hope that God is sovereign. That he will judge in a just way. That he is holy. Even though it might not be in our timing, we understand that he is slow to anger and that people that don't know him need to come to him. But we've been given a voice we have been given the gospel message. We have been given feet to take that gospel of peace to them. We have to acknowledge that our strength is not something that can measure up to the strength of God. As we've been talking about in Sunday school, you looked at all of the excuses that Moses gave about not going where the Lord called him to go. We can all say the exact same things. If it's in our own power, I would agree with him we have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And if we're called to go, we better go. We have to follow his path. And finally, we need to remember that as we stray, as we fail, as we falter in this life, our God is the one who restores. Yes, there is indignation, there is extreme anger that is described in this book. But as Romans 11 says, along with that severity is kindness. Again, understanding the attributes of God together.
God desires relationship with his people. So we need to come before him bowed low this morning, humble in gratitude for the salvation that we've received and rest in his glory and truth and power and might. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to walk through the prophets and we see the warnings that are given, I pray that they do not fall on deaf ears here. Lord, I pray that we can understand the warnings that are seen in scriptures to not have prideful hearts, to not lean on our own ways of understanding, but Lord, to trust in your word. I pray this week that we could continue to read Nahum, that we could continue to read the prophets, that we can spend time meditating on your word day and night. Lord, I thank you for the salvation that you have given us. But I pray that we do not get arrogant with that. I pray that we are not ignorant of what you have called us to do. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts to love people the way that you love them. Give us the words to speak to them. I pray for our weeks, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit to advance your kingdom forward. Allow us to go in confidence, trusting in your truth, in your truth alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.